majors. Um, to another exciting episode of Under the Dome. We're uh, roulette. Is that what I see? Roulette edition of Under the Dome? Yeah. Where, pray tell, does roulette come from? Okay, well, to follow suit, 80s rock and roll, hair metal, whatever you want to call it, which I, I personally find the term hair metal to be offensive. Uh, <laughs> okay. If we're going to call it anything, let's call it Aquanet metal. Anyway. Uh, Glam rock. Oh, that's even more offensive than hair metal. Uh, we only wore makeup on stage. Anyway, there's a Bon Jovi song off of, uh, I want to say... It's off of one of the first two albums. I'm drawing a blank right now. But the name of the song was Roulette. Cool song. But to tie it in to where we are now, we're kind of back at that somewhat dead point in time in the in the league year where we're be, we're after the combine, so everybody's processing what these guys look like in shorts running up and down the field and running around cones and jumping up in the air and catching passes and la di da da Everybody's processing that, and we're about to either invest in a free agent uh, market or we're going to go all in in the draft, and it's kind of like playing roulette. So there you go. Okay. okay. All right. Well, <laughs> it made well, sense when I thought of it. There we go. No, hey, look, you're going to learn. We, we talked about music already. We're talking about my other secret passion here. Um, I'm really active in comic book face groups, Facebook groups. And uh, Roulette is also a character in DC Comics. So the first thing I saw Roulette, I'm like, Okay, are we talking about the Injustice Society? Or what are we talking about here? So, never you're gonna, mind. <laughs> you're going to have to fax, fax, uh, email me a list of these names so that I can kind of somehow or another on the sly work them in. Uh, of comic book characters? Oh, my yeah. God. You'll be here for a while. You'll be <laughs> here for a long time. Um, anyway. We want to okay. thank everyone for joining us tonight. Uh, on Under the Dome. Uh, we are family here. My name is Sean Williams. I'm one of the two co-hosts, my esteemed colleague, and the walking encyclopedia of knowledge that he is of not only the New Orleans Saints, but the rich and colorful history of the National Football League, Mr. I, Alan Ulrich. I have a complete and thorough command of totally useless information. That's all I got. I'm no encyclopedia. <laughs> I but can, we, uh, I, I'm great at Trivia Pursuit. That's about it. It's just useless information that I know. <laughs> I have not found a way yet to get paid playing Trivial Pursuit. If Me I could, either. I, I'd be like a riverboat gambler at Trivial Pursuit. I, I'd be walking around with a, uh, with a Halliburton full of the little pie slices, you know. Uh, but anyway, we're get, I, I'm getting sidetracked. Uh, I turn my head too fast, and it's like an Etch-A-Sketch. It just kind of erases. Um, we want to thank everyone for joining us tonight on Under the Dome, and we want to thank our sponsor for our show, The Fan First Productions, uh, and invite any uh, 
Carolina Panthers fans that are of such a mind to catch the C3 network, the Carolina Cat Chronicles, the mothership that pilots, pilots, pilots. There's there's only one P in that word. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I, I, I was going to do a really fabulous job tonight. No slips, uh, everything, but you know that that just would not be who we are. Uh, and I embrace it. It is who we are. It's part of our appeal. We love it. Uh, real quick, I want to take this opportunity to wish a former guest of ours, uh, a good friend of ours, uh, that fireman, Barry Mathern. Today is his birthday. We want to wish him a very happy birthday. Um, and anyone that follows our page on Facebook knows that earlier this week would, uh, I believe, yesterday was would have been uh mama donnie's birthday so uh we just want everyone to know that we're thinking about her at this time and we miss her um we want to invite you guys to subscribe to our show on itunes and on youtube for all the new orleans saints information that you need we are your source and you can ask us, and if we don't know, we'll pretend we know and give it enough conviction to convince you that we do. <laughs> hence, hence why I got the golden shovel drawn on my paper Went back in high school one year. <laughs> There's BS to be had. I got it. Um, so, Sean. I may not know, but I'm not going to let you know that I don't know. <laughs> What's been going on in the Saints world? Has anything exciting happened? Any good rumors? Have you heard any good rumors lately? I heard. Now, you're not going to believe this. You really. This is going to blow your mind that anybody would even consider this. I have heard that there's a possibility of a reunion. That's it. <laughs> They're putting the I've, band back together. I've heard this on everything except Good Morning America. I know. It is, it is all the <laughs> Actually, you know what we should do before we, we get into the Jimmy Graham stuff? We should talk a little bit about Kurt Coleman and the signing of Coleman. And what does that mean yes. with Kenny Vaccaro? Because, um, listen, you know, a lot of people, um, a lot of people, A, were kind of disappointed that we signed Coleman because I think, especially among the LSU contingent, I think a lot of people wanted to see the Saints uh, take a shot at uh, – you know, Tyron Matthew, the honey badger, uh, but he's not a free agent yet. And they're not sure. The Cardinals aren't sure what they're going to do with him. Uh, they can't afford to keep him. They'd like to restructure his deal. They'd like to extend him and restructure his deal, but they're not sure if they have that ability. So he'll probably get released. Uh, the Saints jumped on Kirk Coleman not long after the Panthers released him uh, because mainly – I think they were dissatisfied with the performance of Kenny Vaccaro, what they got for him. Uh, you know, he's a first-round draft choice. He started out really well in the beginning, his, his, fresh, his first year, not his freshman year, his first year uh, in 2013. But since then, he's been injured. He, he goes – he's gone in and out of uh, Peyton's doghouse. If you remember in 2015, I think it was, Peyton benched him for a couple games or benched him for a game, sat him down, worked with him, 
And, you know, Vaccaro came back after the benching saying, you know, I'm a changed person, play better. But we've also seen the Saints in 2016 draft Von Bell out of uh, Ohio State. Then last year, Marcus Williams um, out of uh, Utah. So it looks like the handwriting's been on the wall for Vaccaro for, oh, yeah, and he was also rumored to be a trade bait in 2016 and last year. Um, he Gary got the suspension. Reason. Yeah, he got the suspension, too, in, at the end of the 2016 season. So I think, you know, the handwriting was pretty obvious on the wall. So they are looking for someone, or the Saints at least, were looking for someone with some veteran leadership, but was inexpensive, which is knocks out a player like Matthew. You know, Coleman fits that. Coleman can play free and strong safety. Coleman's a veteran with leadership. Coleman is cheap, you know, relatively compared to what we would have to pay to keep Vaccaro. So I think that all factored in the decision to go with Coleman. That doesn't mean the set, the safety position is set, but it does mean that they're not forced to draft a safety early to replace Kenny Vaccaro. I mean, how do you feel? I believe if you had to sum up the career of Kenny Vaccaro thus far in New Orleans, uh, as a matter of fact, I had this conversation last night with our, our, our buddy over at the, uh, the C3 network, uh, Tony, and I told him that it was nothing against Vaccaro's ability. The biggest knock for me on Vaccaro is inconsistency. He runs the gamut between playing at an all-pro level where he's stopping everything in, in his zone and he's adequate in coverage to where he plays like the village idiot and gets 45 to 60 yards in penalties and he misses tackles and he's slow in coverage against these bigger tight ends and just gets beat. And he runs that gamut too often and too quickly. You don't, you haven't gotten the consistency out of him that you needed much like what you alluded to a moment of a moment ago I believe that the writing has been on the wall, if not two years, then at least a year ago when you take safeties early and often in the last two drafts uh, with Bell and uh, as of late Williams, I, I think that that told you all that you needed to know about whether or not they were going to invest in Vaccaro for the future. And I agree I hate to see Vaccaro go because he spent his entire career here and he's he's been a really good player from time to time. Uh, do I think that he is a building block for the future? Possibly he could be considered such, but not once you introduce Bell and Marcus Williams into the mix, you you've gone to the effort and the investment of acquiring and keeping those two guys. So that kind of makes Vaccaro expendable. If that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. No, it makes perfect uh, sense. I looked uh, initially when I heard about the Coleman move, 
I thought, okay, this is a move towards depth and veteran presence in the secondary, much the same as what we did, uh, what was it, one or two seasons ago, in bringing Harp back, Roman Harper. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tony quickly corrected me on that. He said, but this guy can has still got something in his tank above and beyond what Harper had. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, too, and this is the other thing I said when it came to discussion about Matthew coming over, you know, Honey Badger coming over. Um, I kept saying, and I got laughed at by these guys, but I kept saying over and over again, I said, listen, the Saints are looking for a rotational player, a guy who is not going to be the starter. The starters are Bell and Williams. Those are your starting safeties. Now, the evolution of offenses and we'll talk more about this when we get to the Graham discussion but the evolution of offenses has sort of created the need for a player who is a hybrid safety linebacker okay a guy who can cover like a safety but can also play the run like a linebacker and that's what they're looking for they were looking for that out of Vicaro and they're looking for that with Coleman, and I would not be surprised to see them draft somebody with a plan for the future of a guy who has a capability along with linebackers who are smaller and faster but can play the run a lot better than a typical tweener linebacker, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I don't know if you – you know, they're looking for someone who is – built like a linebacker but has the speed of a safety so they can go to this big nickel three safety alignment with two fast linebackers who can cover sideline to sideline that's ideally what they'd like to have that way they've got a defense that can handle the more spread oriented offenses that are coming out and colleges are turning those kind of players out too because so many college programs are are geared towards the spread that you have now undersized tweener defensive ends coming into the NFL. You have a lot of linebacker safety hybrid kind of players because there's a player we can talk about um, as the draft gets closer. But uh, he apparently had a really – I didn't watch any of the uh, combine because I don't like watching the combine. It's hard to get excited about people who – are running around doing basically track and field activities and saying, okay, this is a football player, you know? Yeah. It's it. They're not, they're not playing football. People fall in love with 40 times with cone, three cone drills and that kind of stuff. And guys running around catching balls in, uh, in t-shirt and spandex bike shorts. You know what I mean? But it's not, it's just like I asked you last week. The the 40 times last year, John Ross set a brand new record that probably there's there's a bigger chance than not will never be broken. And my question to you, did he die? You know, and nobody heard from him once the draft was over with. When they called his name, uh, who was it? Cincinnati took him? Yeah, the Bengals uh, took him, yeah. 
and they announced his name when they announced their uh, 53-man roster, and that may be the last time that anyone mentioned his name. Mm-hmm. Um, you, well, you, can, that. you can love all these intangibles all that you want, and I know that they're, they have a place in the grand scheme of things, but they are not the be-all, end-all, and I have never bought into that. Well, you know, it's useful information. It's not worth. It's not worthless to go out there and look at it. it uh, don't get me wrong, but don't make judgments on where they're going to go in the draft or how good of a pro they're going to be based on what you saw at the combine. Because you need to go back and look at what kind of foot. How did they play football? What kind of football player were they? Okay. It's just one small sample. It's like the Wonderlick test. It's one small sample of the things that you have to do to evaluate a player. We don't get to, as fans, we don't get to do the interviews. We don't get to go through all the, you know, the background information. Get the, you know, you, you can watch the John Gruden thing, or I don't know who's going to do it now, but you, the old John Gruden thing where you'd have the guy on the chalkboard and break down the defense, the quarterback break down the defenses and things like that. But it's all of that stuff. It's all of it that makes up the decisions whether to take this player or not. So when you see a guy like the LSU receiver who shot up a lot of people's draft boards um, because he turned out a great. 40 time and great agility on the drills and, and that kind of stuff. You forget, okay, but how does he catch the football in traffic? How does he deal with contested throws? How does he deal with the jam? You know, and, and granted, <clears throat> you have to also take that with a grain of salt because just like watching, you know, um, a tight end playing at a division, I still call them division one, division two, division three. I'm sorry. that That's just an old habit, but basically a division two school you know when you watch a guy play that in that position you have to remember okay but that's against that kind of talent how will he do against upper echelon talent well you have to look at the senior bowl footage you have to look at other you know we don't get to see all the practices we don't get to see all the tape and the breakdown and so forth um but that's what I'm talking about. When it comes to the LSU receiver yes you have taken consideration the primitive offense he played in the limitations had in quarterback, and so forth. But at the same time, when he did get opportunities, how did he do? When the ball wasn't coming to him, what did he do out on the field? Did he finish his route, or did he kind of half-step it through his route uh, because, well, the play's not coming my way anyway, so it really doesn't matter. I don't need to go full out. Those are the things that you need to see before you make a decision because if you see a guy who plays every down like it's his last down, and gives it all he's got, even if the game is lost, even if the play isn't going to him, even if the, uh, you know, it's a running down, he's a receiver, and he's supposed to run a clear out for the running play, whatever, that's what you want to see. You want to see that on the tape because that is the determination whether or not this guy's going to be good a good enough pro or not. So... You well, know, let me ask you, mm-hmm. you, uh, you alluded to the combine and what you see as, as a possible need for us moving forward, uh, being that maybe not muscle-bound middle linebacker, but a smaller, uh, faster. And, and that brought to mind immediately 
someone that apparently put him put together for himself a very productive combine this year. And uh, that would be the University of Central Florida's middle linebacker, Shaquem. Uh, yeah, uh, Griffin, Griffin, I believe his name. Yeah. I was drawing a blank. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, now, <clears throat> for those of you who are not aware, Shaquem Griffin, at the age of four years old, had to have about this much of his arm amputated. Mm-hmm. Um, and. He has played all through middle school, high school, uh, college with only one arm playing middle linebacker. Do you see that as being something that could possibly prevent him from having a career in the NFL, or can he succeed? You know, it's hard. Um <clears throat> Here, here's the thing. Whenever you're dealing with a guy with a disability, okay, can he play with that disability? I don't know if he can play with that hand. You know, um, I don't know what the rules are for something like that. I do know in the case of uh, Tom Dempsey that they no longer allow a shoe like that. They've changed the rules where they can't have a partial shoe. Uh, they have to be able to play with a full shoe, or they can't do it at all. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Adrian Claiborne, what did he have again? It was gen- – uh, i got to look up the exact – okay. Adrian Claiborne, he has or had uh, – he uh, – Herb's palsy, um, which is something that he had by birth. It was an injury that uh, – it, it's something that caused an injury to the nerves surrounding the, his shoulder because his head and neck were pulled to the side as his shoulders passed through the birth canal. He suffered nerve damage, resulting in some movement and weakness in his right arm. Um, now, he has, he has done physical therapy, and it has given him – more flexibility and better strength in his arm, but it's one of those things that you have to. You, they players had to. I mean, uh, scouts and medical people had to evaluate. You know, so with a guy who's missing part of his, is it his arm or his hand? It's the, about uh, middle ways between the elbow and the wrist on his left arm. Okay. Because I honestly don't know much about him. Um, I just know that the that the league is funny about the you know people having. Does he have to have some sort of special appendage or special protection for that arm? Uh, you know? To my to my knowledge, no, he doesn't play with any sort of prosthesis on. Okay, um, I do know that at the combine for him to be able to do the bench press he had a a a prosthesis that he used Mm -hmm. yeah i saw that that's why i was asking the question because i saw the uh the videos of him doing the bench press and it was impressive for someone who's missing part of his arm he he showed he had the strength 
this is that this is a guy though that I was intrigued with as one of those tweeners, you know, that we were talking about earlier. Somebody who can play linebacker as the size of a linebacker, but kind of the speed of a safety. So, you know, there is a I think there is going to be a place for him. You just have to know or be comfortable with that that piece on his arm if he can wear that. So um I'll be honest I, with you, everything that I've seen on the guy. I wouldn't bat an eye if the New Orleans Saints drafted him. Uh, mm-hmm. He he has an exceptional motor. He's highly, highly motivated, and he seems to have a very solid foundation, uh, mm-hmm. pers- mm-hmm. personal-wise. Uh, I, I love the guy. I hope that he doesn't get the old poor Shaquem treatment and somebody just drafts him as a token uh token gesture maybe no uh, i can't see him do that because here, here it is you know unless this is, we're talking about somebody taking him with one of the uh compensatory picks you know in the fourth or fifth round which i don't think he'll go that far down but unless you see someone taking him in that i i just can't see Here's the other thing, and I've mentioned this a few times. Because of the CBA and because of the way rookie contracts are structured, you know, draft choices are now kind of like gold. Um, teams are hoarding draft choices left and right because that is the best way to fix your salary cap issues. You know, you just start drafting and bringing in lots of undrafted free agents are guys on those rookie contracts to kind of build up your core and then use your free agency dollars to kind of plug in a couple guys and then pay your best players. So you have a little bit left at the top who get all the money. You got a little middle part of guys who kind of like those mid free agent kind of players. Then the base is going to be people on rookie and cheap contracts. So the more draft picks you have, the easier it is to build that base up. And you're going to see guys who um, are approaching 30 or 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 30 kind of get pushed out of the league early because teams aren't going to be willing to pay them unless they're willing to work for a lot cheaper. Teams aren't going to be willing to pay them a lot of money because – They've got that money allocated to their next crop of stars who are going to be in that top part, who are the people who, you know, the young enough players, they get that one big contract, and the rest is your rookies, and you're just constantly rebuilding, refreshing your team with draft picks and, you know, undrafted free agents because those are the guys that you're going to go through and say, okay, I think I can pay this guy this top money, I'm going to hold on to him, but I'm going to drive this guy out. That's the way rosters can get built from now on. Yeah, I agree. Okay, we've uh, we've delayed the inevitable long enough. <laughs> Just to kind of well, switch things up and to make things interesting, for this following segment, we're going to let you be uh, pro-Jimmy Graham. Why the Saints should bring him back and, and just to uh to balance things out i'll i'll take the side of no it never needs to happen jimmy needs to die 
Well, <laughs> you know, it, it, there's so many reasons. I mean, there's re there, there's actually good reasons why you don't bring him back, and one of them is his age. But okay, here's the obvious reasons to bring him back. You, you know what he's done in this offense. You know, no tight end in Saints history has ever come close to the kind of numbers that he put up. None. I mean, it, it, it's not even close. You can't compare him to anybody else. Okay. Sure. I mean, Michael Thomas had a pro bowl, all pro type of year. And he just surpassed uh, Jimmy Graham's 2011 numbers uh, as, as far as catches in week 15 or 16. I think it was, you know, the 99 catches. He yeah. finally got over 99 catches. You know, that, that's just, that's just astounding for a tight end. Um, he's an ideal fit for this kind of offense, the kind of player he is. A pass-receiving tight end, not a blocker, but a pass-receiving tight end is exactly what this offense calls for. It's designed for that kind of player. A blocking tight end is a waste in this offense. I don't care if we have a running game. I don't. That's not the role of tight ends in this offense. Tight ends can come in to play the extra blocker occasionally, but he can just as easily put out. You, you remember Zach Streif before he became uh, a starter. Zach Streif was constantly being sent out there. This was long before Jimmy Graham was even. This is when Jimmy Graham was still at University of Miami. Um, Zach Streif would go out there so often, and the officials had the announcers, 67s reporting as eligible, that people were wearing jerseys. Zach Streif jersey, 67, and on the back is it as eligible because it was a running joke for people because he was constantly sending him in to play the tight end position, okay? I've got photos from 20, 2009, 2010, 2011 with Zach Streif in there, and then after Zach Streif became the starter because John Stitchcomb had to retire – with uh, uh, other other offensive linemen in there. So you had six offensive linemen in there all the time. Jimmy Graham and the way <clears throat> offenses have evolved now, Sean Payton likes to use a tight end like Jimmy Graham to line him up outside the numbers like a big receiver because he's talking about drawing matchups. You put Jimmy Graham or a tight end, because they did this with Jacques, uh, with uh, Josh Hill. They did it with Fleener. You put a tight end out there in the slot, or you put a tight end outside the numbers. He's matched up against a safety or a linebacker. In Sean Payton's mind, you should win that matchup. Think about the Atlanta game when Josh Hill runs the post. Incredible interception by uh, Deion Jones for the Falcons. But when Josh Hill runs that post, what was the matchup? A tight end on a linebacker. In Sean Payton's mind, you should win that matchup every time. The problem was Josh Hill could not get up, could not jump up high enough to snatch that ball out the air. Deion Jones is far more athletic than Josh Hill. He makes the play, gets the interception, wins the ball game on the interception. Jimmy Graham's up there. Jimmy Graham can get up that high, high. Now Drew can throw it even higher. Graham gets it. He's more athletic than Jones is. 
Saints catch Saints win that ball game. That's the game winning touchdown right there. That's the difference. That's how Sean Payton looks at it. I'm looking for matchup problems, a guy who is a bad matchup for my offense. And here's the other thing Jimmy Graham offers you. You think about his most productive years, 2011, 2013. What do we have then? We had, aside from a full complement of receivers, you had Darren Sproles. With a Darren Sproles, now people have to look in the backfield when they see Sproles. Graham comes out into the route. You want to jump Graham on the route? Look who's sneaking out the backfield now. Sproles. Imagine with uh, Alvin Kamara. Same concept. Graham comes out. You attack Graham. Here comes Kamara. Kamara's not going down on one hit. Kamara's just as elusive as Sproles is. And he's a, a bit of a better runner as far as power than Sproles was. So a Jimmy Graham or Jimmy Graham type of player makes Alvin Kamara more effective. He makes Michael Thomas more effective because now they can't just key on Thomas. You can't put Xavier Rhodes on Thomas all ball game like the Vikings tried to do. You now have to watch because you put you try and double up on Thomas. Here comes Graham. Graham's going to start eating you up. Okay. So, okay, we're going to put coverage on Graham. Think about the Arizona Cardinals game uh, a couple years ago, uh, two years ago, when uh, they pro- probably put uh, Patrick Peterson on Cooks. Thomas start. No, I'm sorry, Thomas first. They put it on Thomas first. Cooks eats him up in the first half. So they put Peterson on Cooks. All of a sudden, Thomas comes alive. You know, it's all about that. It's about getting this offense as many weapons as you possibly can. If I can flood the pattern with five eligible receivers who can all threaten your defense, and I'm talking Graham, Thomas, Kamara, Ginn, and I still think they're going to draft somebody. So if you can send five legitimate targets out there who threaten the defense, uh, who are you going to stop? Who are you going to double? You can't double everybody. Somebody's going to come open. There's somewhere there's going to be a matchup problem. And what was our biggest weaknesses this past year? Our biggest weakness was third down conversion. Three games that we lost because we couldn't convert third downs, including the divisional game Okay, against the Vikings. You convert that third and one. I'm not saying that Graham would have done it. Okay. But I'm just saying, if you convert that third and one to a first down, the Vikings have one timeout left. They're going to have to use it. We can take three knees, kick the field goal, win the ball game. Um, The Vikings never get a chance to touch the ball again on offense. The ball game's over. You win it just like how you won against Philadelphia on the road in 2013. And that's the kind of stuff. That's why I'm very pro Jimmy Graham because I think – Graham is the key to making Kamara and Thomas even better because he makes the offense better. Uh, and, and that's just the, now the negative, which you can get into. The negative, of course, is how much is this going to cost us to do that? No, no, no. My biggest concern, and I've, I've seriously paid this a lot of mind in the past several days as the rumor mill has grown. Um, mm-hmm. My 
first concern and before I get into that, you, you just mentioned the money and how much it'll cost mm-hmm. to me. I think that on both sides of it, that the money is going to be secondary. In other words, I don't look for Graham to say, you're going to have to pay me more money or I'm not coming back because, mm-hmm. uh, in Graham's mind, there's unfinished business between with him and breeze. In my opinion, uh, Graham has the body of work that he's put together in Seattle over the past, what, three seasons, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. that he has to look back on. And it's hurt his paycheck to have spent the past three seasons in Seattle. Uh, Now, was he right for the way he handled his business in New Orleans? Was he wrong? That's, That's really a very little consequence moving forward. And, uh, Someone reported earlier this week, oh, there's no hard feelings. Well, you know, they're saying what they think Jimmy wants to hear. Uh, as my esteemed colleague put it, in other news, water's wet. Uh, mm-hmm. I do believe that Jimmy coming back to New Orleans would be a good idea, and it would be a very strategic move if... Jimmy's got to come back with the right frame of mind, the right work ethic. He has to fit in that locker room. He cannot be uh, what, and and I think you and I have disagreed about this before, but uh, he cannot enter that uh, that locker room as a prima donna as he was before. Um. <clears throat> I, I, well, I'll tell you this, and you know, this is just just take it for what it's worth. You're seeing Cam Jordan tweeting about Jimmy come back. You know, yes. Mark Ingram tweeting Jimmy come back. Michael Thomas is intrigued by Jimmy, you know, wanting Jimmy back. You know, you, you see Zach Streif, guys who were in that locker room before. I don't think you would see if he was a, truly a prima donna. And I'm not just, I'm not arguing and discounting anybody else's opinion, but I, I think if he was truly. I shouldn't say prima donna, but a bad influence in the locker room, like a, a Junior Gallette, like, um, oh, you know, Terrell Owens, if Owens ever played for us. You know, if he was like that kind of player, I don't think you'd see players openly tweeting on social media, hey, man, you need to come back. Um, I think he was generally gen- genuinely liked by his teammates. Um, But I do agree with you. He has to come back humble. He can't come back thinking, okay, Jimmy's here. I'm back. You can start throwing me the ball 80, 90 times a ball game because I'm here to save the offense. Can't have that attitude. And I don't think he will. But I think uh, when people fear that, I think that's a legitimate fear. You know, he has to realize this offense is very different than it was in 2013 and 2014. That kind of leads me to the first point as far as the negatives. Mm -hmm. Um, My biggest concern with Jimmy Graham coming back into this offense is how it's going to affect the dynamic of Michael Thomas. Uh, 
Michael Thomas is the focal point in terms of the passing game right now. Now, I'm mm -hmm. not saying, uh, well, we can't bring this one in or that one in because they might hurt his feelings if they get thrown the ball and he doesn't. I'm not saying that at all. But, you know, it's been proven that Jimmy wants the ball if Jimmy's here. Jimmy wanted the ball in Seattle, but he wasn't going to get it because that's Russell Wilson's show up there. And I think that kind of humbled him a bit. You know, I think he realized that, okay, I'm not the focal point of this offense, but I've got to make take advantage of the opportunities I do get. And I think you saw that in his last couple seasons there. I mean, the only reason why they're not keeping him is because Seattle is just – it's completely falling apart. Um, the defense has gotten old. The offense, the offensive line's a train wreck. You know, they really have no running back. It's really all <laughs> – and it's funny, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about this when we start getting into the, you know, draft picks. But this is my issue with the people who are talking about, you know, the Saints should draft a Lamar Jackson or some, a player like that. Because I said in every single case, when you have a multi-threat quarterback – Everything else kind of goes away, and the offense becomes all about that quarterback. You know, you think about Michael Vick when he was in Atlanta, Carolina with Cam Newton. Um, you're seeing it now in Seattle, Russell Wilson. Um, it's it's no longer no longer um, a, you know okay. In this offense, Drew Brees gets rid of the ball every three to five seconds, okay? He's either handing it off to Ingram or Kamara, or he's throwing it, okay? He is not looking to make a play as a running back, or he's not looking to make a play as a, you know, as some sort of impact player with his legs. He's looking to get rid of the ball, to get it into the hands of his playmakers, and they're going to make the play. He can make it happen, but they're going to make the play, okay? When you have a quarterback and you start running the, you know, the read option where you fake it to the running back and then the quarterback bootlegs it away, that's less touches for Kamara. That's less touches for Ingram. That's less touches in passing to a Michael Thomas or, you know, Ted Ginn, Willie Sneed, whoever the receivers are out there, okay? It's less touches for those guys because you've taken that one play now and the quarterback has run with the ball, okay? And I think that's the issue you have with that kind of quarterback. The, you have to kind of change the offense, and I think that's what they're going to do in Seattle. They're going to change the offense to make Russell Wilson more of a pocket passer and center the offense where Wilson gets rid of the ball and gets the ball into hands of other playmakers, and he runs when he has to, not as part of designed as a part of a designed offense. I think that's what Carolina wants to do with Cam Newton because he's taken so many hits um, for his own health and longevity. They're going to want to get the ball out of his hands and get the ball into, you know, whether it's uh, Christian McCaffrey or I'm sure they're going to draft a running back this year. Um, whoever their new running back is, they want to rebuild that receiving core so the ball gets into the hands of those guys. And, the, and Newton is more known as a passer 
than a runner. So just just how I see things. If they don't do something to change around their offense, and of course I realize this isn't a Carolina Panthers show, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I had this conversation just the other day. If if Carolina doesn't do choose to go in a different route than what they're going, Cam Newton won't play another five years in this league. He's just he's taking too much abuse. It'll start off slow. He'll move. He'll miss two games here, three games there, and then it'll be half a season, and then it'll be. He'll start at the beginning of the season and come back at the end of the season. And before you know it, he's done. Yeah. I mean, you look at you look at every quarterback that runs and you start looking at the history, how long they played in the league. You look at a guy like um I can't think of his name right now, uh RG three, uh Griffin. Griffin the third. Yeah. Okay. Griffin the third, um, he, he after a while he started getting break his body started breaking down. He had that first great year, okay, and then his body started breaking down because he couldn't take those hits all the time. Uh, Randall Cunningham, he started getting injured. He blew his knee out against the uh, Green Bay Packers. I think it was in 1991. Yeah, it was 91. He blew out his knee against the Green Bay Packers. Now, in 89, he was the quarterback of the future. That was the superback, okay? That was a Sports Illustrated cover. Two years later, 1991, he blows out his knee. He's not the quarterback he used to be. And when he goes to the Vikings and becomes a starter for the Vikings in the late 90s, suddenly now he's a much better pocket passer. He's had to evolve his game, okay? He couldn't just run around out there because what happens is defensive coordinators sit there and watch you and break down the film on everything you do and start looking for the tells and just study what you like and what you don't like. Michael Vick didn't like to roll out to his left. He liked to roll out to his right. So they used to send the blitzes in uh, to his right to make him roll out to his left where he was less comfortable running the ball. I think that was right. I could have my directions confused. It's been a while since I watched him, but I do know that was one of his tells. You know, he didn't like rolling out to one side. If he ran, he always chose to run on one side, not the other. So what do they do? They overload blitz to the side he likes to run because they could get to him then. Um, That's the difference between that and college football. People want to see the quarterback in college football who can just be the man. The big fish in the small pond, making defenders look stupid, running around out there um, with an incredible whiplash arm and just running, make plays, and and just doing all kinds of – being the big man on campus, the guy on the football field. You know, every time he touches the ball, something dynamic is going to happen. That works in college football because those guys are only together three or four years. In the pros, you've got – a Football never ends. Defensive coordinators never give up, never stop looking at film, figuring how to beat you. And they're going to draft players designed to beat you. They're going to find defensive linemen who can run as fast as you and run your butt down. And where you like to go, where, where, where uh, when you decide to run, how long does it take for you to make that decision? Because they know if it takes – Three seconds, two seconds, make that decision. That's how much time they got to get to you. They want to speed up that clock. 
So you have to make that decision even earlier, playing into their hands. That's the kind of stuff they do. And, you know, so, you know, a guy like, um, who was the kid? Vince Young. I couldn't think of his name. A guy like Vince Young has that one great year in Tennessee. And then he's never the same. We can't figure out why. Well, defense has figured him out. They figured out what he thing, and you have to improve. You can say the same thing about Colin Kaepernick. He had that one incredible year for the San Francisco 49ers on the strength of that on the strength of that defense, a big chunk of it was. But I mean, I, I won't take anything away from the guy. Uh he had some really incredible games playing quarterback that year, especially in that playoff run. Uh the dual threat thing worked like a charm. Well, at the end of that season. He approaches the the front office of the 49ers and says, I want to get paid. And the 49ers are like, well, you know, we don't have any alternatives. We don't, there's not a whole lot we can do. So they have to invest mightily to keep him on as quarterback. And from their standpoint of thinking, you you stop and you say, well, you know, uh, he had us within three, two or three yards of winning the Super Bowl a few mm. months ago. Yeah, let's let's give him that big deal. But if we're going to do that, I don't want to put him at risk. You're you're investing the biggest chunk of the franchise in these guys and then you're supposed to be okay with them going out on the field and putting that putting all of that at risk by running the ball up the middle. These mm-hmm. guys, get Getting hit in college is not the same as getting hit by professional football players. In college football, the average team plays um, maybe a a team that has one or two, maybe three players who are going to go on to the next level. Um, I know it was the case at UL. We had at most three guys that were going to go play the next level. You know, if you're talking about a team like LSU and Alabama – maybe 20 guys combined on both rosters are going to play at the next level. But the average college game, and how many people out there, there's 100 players on each side basically uh, playing in the game. Um, so, you know, that's what? 80% of the players aren't going to play college, play football past their senior year. I've got several friends who have played football for LSU, never played at the professional level, you know, Um but anyway, one last thing, just to make sure that, you know, I'm not just bashing running quarterbacks. Let's go look at a guy like uh, Rick Meyer, okay? Rick Meyer is a great example of not progressing to the next level. Did you know Rick Meyer actually outplayed Drew Bledsoe? Because they were taking 1-2 way back yep. when in the draft. Rick Meyer actually outplayed Drew Bledsoe when he went to the uh, – Seattle Seahawks that first year because you had a court, a coach, um, Tom Flores, who gave him a very basic offense. We had very simple reads to make and he was very successful at it. Whereas Bledsoe, when he went to New England, had a much harder time, a little more complex offense, had a much harder time kind of getting his game going. Okay. 
it was the next year, the second year for Meyer and Bledsoe where the separation happened. Meyer stayed at that same level because defensive coordinators started watching the tapes and said, you know what? He doesn't like to go to his left. He never looks to his left. When he is when he's making his reads, all his reads are on this side of the field. They're never on this side of the field. So what we're going to do is we're going to confuse him on this side and make him look over here. And a lot of times Meyer failed to make that adjustment and tried to force it where the coverage was. And that's when his career became untracked. That's where his career fell apart. Now, Randy Mueller, who was who would become the Saints general manager, stole stole draft picks from the, <laughs> from the Chicago Bears. They conned the Bears into giving them first round picks for Rick Meyer. And you know, that that's if there's anything that's really good about Randy Mueller, I have to give him credit for the way he was able to parlay bad mistakes into draft picks. He did it with Ricky Williams, although Ricky Williams wasn't excuse me, as bad a mistake as Rick Meyer, as Ricky Williams could actually play, but he was able to get two number one picks for Ricky Williams, which didn't quite make up for the whole draft uh, that we lost in 1999, but you got a lot for Ricky Williams. Anyway, that's my point. A player never got better. So once defense has figured you out, your job is to either change the way you play to get better and make defenses work even harder, figure you out, or you're just a flash in the pan. You had that one or two good years, and then you're gone. And that's my fear when it comes to some of these rookie quarterbacks coming into the league, especially a running quarterback uh, who primarily runs, I'm much more confident a pocket passer doesn't, doesn't mean they're going to be a better quarterback. Don't misunderstand me. It just means that I am more confident with a pocket passer because I think he has the ability to, because he knows he's not going to be able to run, he's going to be forced to, improve as a passer first and for this kind of offense that's what you need again just like bring it back to jimmy graham it's the same thing with jimmy graham it's that's what this offense is built around that's the kind of player that best functions in this offense a pass receiving tight end best functions in this offense a pocket passing quarterback best functions in this offense so and that being said, if we draft Lamar Jackson, I'm going to hurl myself off the top step outside. Um, you know, I I, I will be disappointed. <laughs> I, I'm not going to be that upset. I'll just be disappointed because I I don't believe he's a good fit for this offense. I think he is going to be a much better fit with a team that can build their offense around what he does best. That's, you know, he's not, I'm not, I'm I'm not going to go into the whole, whether or not he's an NFL quarterback. He's not that, that, you know, that that's, we'll see. We'll see when it comes to that. 
my thing is though he needs to go to an offense where he can be the centerpiece, not yeah. this offense because this offense he's not going to be the centerpiece. This offense is built around timing, getting the ball out of your hands, and getting the ball into the hands of your playmakers, not a running, not not the read option, not something where the quarterback is going to tuck it and run. If Breeze is running, it's because the play is broken down and he has to make a play. Okay. Um, but he's always looking downfield to make the throw. He's not looking to run for that first down. If he has a choice between running for the first down and throwing the ball for a first down, he's going to throw it every time. And that's really what this offense is based off of because you, you, you're throwing to spots on the field. You're not, you're not just playing playground football, you know, um, everything just sandlot football, everything just kind of goes out the window. Everything's structured. There's too much structure in this offense to, to do that kind of stuff. That can happen once or twice. It can't be part of your game plan. It just doesn't work that way. Not not in this league. Not 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 for a team like the Saints. That can work for a team um, that doesn't have a lot of playmakers and you've got to do stuff. You've got to pull stuff out of your butt to make happen. You know, <laughs> it just uh, it's part of the reason why John 4K didn't work out, you know, because John 4K could not play very well in a structured offense. He was short, but I mean, he wanted to play sandlot football. Okay. He wanted to play sandlot football and it worked for three games in 89. It didn't work when it got to, when you got to the 1990 season, uh, because he was just such a natural athlete. Um, it just you you he had to play within a structure and it was hard for him to do. He just not he's not wired that way. <laughs> I'm not gonna oh I'm not gonna go down that road. Yeah, we pretty much ruined our chance of ever getting John Forkate as a guest on this show. And he's my second favorite Saints quarterback, actually. Is he really? Yeah. Well, you know, and his little Saints history. In 1989, people are going to, you know, again, we can make reference to Jimmy Graham. In 1989, people were sick of Bobby Bear. They really were. Um, they were sick of the offense, how predictable it was. They were sick of how we just never threw the ball. Um, Brett Perryman used to get on the media and would bitch about, you know, well, you drafted me and I'm not even doing anything on here. He's going Eric Martin all the time. It's really an ugly time. So when you had the, the Detroit Lions game was really the meltdown. That was when the Saints offense was at its absolute worst. Aver got benched, and they put in 4K. It was a loss. Then 4K started the next three games, Buffalo, Philadelphia, and the Colts. And sure enough, as soon as 4K gets in there, who's the first one he's just throwing the ball to? Perryman. Brett Perryman starts getting the ball deep. First play from the in the Philadelphia Monday night game, I bombed the Perryman for a huge play. Um, you know, it's people got excited because, and that was part of the appeal of 4K because the Saints games were fun again. The offense was doing something, it wasn't run the ball, run the ball, run the ball, or on third and seven. Eric Martin runs a five yard route and he's supposed to pick up the other two yards. Never gets it, punt, and let your defense 
and special teams win the ball game. You know, never go for the kill shot. You're always playing not to lose. You're never playing to win the game. You know, <laughs> it, it, it's funny because, you know, I hear people bitch about the quote-unquote predictability of the Saints offense. And that was – I thought maybe you might bring that up with this, with Jimmy Graham. Uh, that Jimmy Graham makes the offense predictable because you know he's not going to block for a running play. So you're going to – you know it's going to be a pass. Well, guess what? Drew Brees throwing the ball over 5,000 times in 12 years. He's probably going to throw the ball again, whether yeah. Jimmy Graham's out there or not. You know, I don't. I don't think that this offense has been nearly as predictable ever before as it was this past year, and that was as big a surprise to people that are uh, closely following the Saints like ourselves as it was to anybody else in the world. That's not going to be the case next year. Because as you alluded to earlier, those defensive coordinators are sitting there with their rewind buttons on, on their DVRs. They're studying this stuff. What, Anyone what, that expects Alvin Kamara to come in next year and get almost 2,000 yards combined yardage, uh, you're deluding yourselves. Mm -hmm. You, no, you have to have you have to have more more weapons to keep these guys effective. Listen. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you saw it at the end of this past year. What did we see in the Carolina playoff game? What did we see in the Minnesota playoff game? What did we see even in the Tampa game at the end of the year in the Jets game? You know, they loaded the box up and decided, you know what, Saints, if you're going to beat us, you're not going to beat us with Ingram and Kamara. You're going to beat us with Drew Brees, which three years ago, that's suicide, okay? <laughs> Four years ago, that's suicide. You know, you remember when we had um, we had uh, a Joey on here. Joey even joked, you know, we have to, we can't let Ingram Kamara beat us. We're gonna, you know, he says we gotta let make Breeze beat us. You give Breeze Jimmy Graham. You give him a young, a powerful receiver to pair along with, uh, you know, Michael Thomas. Now, suddenly you're going, okay, maybe we don't want Breeze to beat us. Maybe we do want to choose the slow death of Ingram getting the ball and Kamara getting, his, getting the ball, and hopefully we can bend, don't break, and slow them down in the red zone. Don't give up the nothing deep, nothing cheap kind of defense. You know, you want to make the Saints work for everything they get. You know, that – I think that is a much better situation for the Saints offense because that's when Peyton's genius comes out as far as a play caller because he's he and Bree start looking at this going, okay, nothing deep, nothing cheap. All right. You know what? We're going to take something deep and cheap because we're going to make you do what we want you to do, and they'll get the play they want. Because that deep, you cannot hold the Saints' offense down that way for an entire ball game. You just can't do it. You saw that with the Vikings game. You saw that in the Carolina game. Um, you just can't hold them down long enough. You just the, the offense needs to be able to finish. That's all. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Um, 
people texting me all during the games, which is really a bad idea, people. <laughs> don't don't try to communicate to me with my high blood pressure. Anyway, people, uh, they run the first series, they run the second series, and we haven't scored 30 points already after the first two series. So they're saying, we suck! And I'm like, look, you know, this is a playoff team that we're playing. Give these mm -hmm. give these folks the opportunity to make their adjustments. Don't read anything into this until the third possession. See what they're doing in the third possession of the ball game, and you're going to get an idea of how the rest of the game very possibly could go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I um. I look – that's why I love when the Saints get the ball in the, to begin the second half because um, we've talked about this before. I love the fact that they'll probably score right before the end of the half. Then they'll get the ball in the second half. They'll score in that possession. Suddenly now it could be instead of a three-point lead, a 10-point lead, a 14-point lead. Who knows, you know, depending on what the score is. Um. Or a deficit, and then suddenly the Saints are right back in the game, whether if it was like the 2009 game uh, against the Miami Dolphins. The Vikings playoff game, we never really did go into that because we had um, Tyrone Hughes on um, that that following week. But I'll be honest with you, during that game, I was like, man, I did not want to go to – this is why I didn't want to play Minnesota yet. I did not want to go down to Minnesota, get our butts kicked, you know, like this because it really looked bad in that first half but like you were just talking about in that second half it's like the saints suddenly clicked and realized you know what they're doing this this and this we know how to counter this now we're going to start making the plays they had that one really good drive score the next possession is the this play here this unbelievable interception by uh, marcus williams uh, that's the next series after we score seven. Get another touchdown. Now it's 14-17. That crowd gets awfully damn quiet. Um, then the next possession for the Saints uh, is just the – they probably ran this play 100 times in practice and 100 times Snead completes that pass. That unbelievable play on the third and one where he throws the ball to a wide-open Alma Kamara and just overthrew him. No, it was third down. That was in the fourth quarter. Yeah, I know. But, I mean, it was third down, third and one. Yeah, because the third quarter, I watched the game again. Well, I fast forward through the first half. But I watched the game again. Um, and that third quarter basically was two possessions because the Vikings got the ball. They got to about midfield, and they missed the – no, they, uh, they got a sack, so they got out of field goal range, had to punt. Saints take over, drive, get the touchdown. Then at the end of the quarter was the this play here. And the Saints score again in the fourth quarter. So, yeah. So the next possession the Saints get is the incomplete pass on third and one, which was a beautiful touchdown. Vikings kick a field goal, make it 20-14. to 14. Saints go down the field. That's the Camaro touchdown, 21-20. You know, now it's a ball game. Now the crowd is really, really nervous. It's getting anxious. It's less than five minutes in the game, that kind of thing. Um, you know, it, it's unfortunate the way it ended. But it just showed you that the Saints offense had this team figured out now. 
We know exactly what we can do, and we're going to move your, this ball at will against you. Just convert that one-third down, and we're playing in Philadelphia for that NFC Championship game. I don't know if we win that game or not. Probably not, judging by the, the number of injuries we had. Yeah. But it would have been the third NFC Championship game that the Saints have been to under Breeze and Peyton, and that's a huge accomplishment. Um, right now, we're kind of we seem to be stuck at that divisional round playoff hump. You know, we lost in 2011 in the divisional round. We lost in 2013 in the divisional round. We lost now in 2017 in the divisional round. We have to get past that divisional round now. Um, and I, that's why I'm for a guy like Jimmy Graham coming to this offense. I'm for drafting an offensive player, um, whether it's a tight end, if Graham doesn't come here, or in a receiver, something to get us over that divisional hump. And it's the offense. I Yes, you need to get better on defense. We need a better pass rush. But to me, it's the offense. The offense is what drives this team. Defense may win championships, but offense gets you there. And we have to improve that offense. Um, we have to get better on the third down conversion. We have to get better in the red zone. That's why I want a guy that Graham, that's the two, that's his two biggest strengths. And I want more weapons for this offense to use so I don't have to rely on my defense to close out the game. My offense can close out the game like they did in 2006 against the Philadelphia Eagles in that awesome, awesome playoff game where Deuce just kept running the ball and getting first down, getting a first down. And that clock just keeps running and Deuce gets that first down because there's nothing more satisfying than to watch a defense just know it's what's coming and they can't stop it. And the offensive players all sit down the sideline with their arms folded, just watching it happen and looking at the clock and looking back on the field and looking at the clock. That is so much more enjoyable than having our defense, and I'm telling you, this is what it was like with the Dome Patrol era, having our defense on the field, and you're sweating out every minute going, come on, come on, we got to make a play. We got to stop them. We cannot let these guys get down the field and make some miracle friggin' play and beat us. I, I, I That's why I, I – maybe – it's PT, uh, PSTD, post-Saint Traumatic Disorder, where I just, every time the defense goes out there, I'm like, you know, the, the Marcus Williams play. I'm like, I've seen this. I've seen this with Big Ben. I've seen it so many times as a Saints fan that it's like, <laughs> I, my daughter was so upset. I was just like, oh, my God, it happened again. Because that's what happens to you as a Saints fan. Don't patrol years. Joe Montana's going to do it. He's going to get the ball. He's going to do exactly what he needs to do to win the ball game. Big Ben, same thing with Atlanta. They're going to get the ball. You know, Hail Mary, they'll get the pass. It'll happen. We'll find a way to lose. That's why I want, I want our offense to finish games. When our <laughs> offense finishes games, I'm like, that's it ball game it's over i'm happy oh you need to take your meds oh man your That's... your blood pressure i can see that vein between your eyebrows again yeah well you know that's it does it because <laughs> it, it's it's like i said it's post-saint traumatic disorder 
you're so used to how this how is the defense going to lose this ball game i don't care who's playing for us we could have an all pro all madden all pro defense we could have it all and um we'll find a way to lose we just will <laughs> it just <laughs> but yeah. i think I think as of late, that narrative has changed, especially over this past season, because you got Cam going off. You mm-hmm. got um, these guys um, do in large part to the play. Uh, I'll say this: the uh, the play of Lattimore has been was indispensable, um, and there for a while, uh, for the for the biggest part of that eight run eight game run that we had in the middle of the season, we had cam on one side and Okafor on the other. Um, and I get the concerns there on Okafor and his return. And, uh, what if he's not able to return? I, I get all of that. To, uh, and people have asked me, and we'll, we're going to get into this in the coming weeks, uh, a little more and a little more in depth. Um, People have asked me, who are you taking at 27? Uh, my my thinking on draft strategy hasn't uh, strayed too far. Off. After you get beyond the first eight to ten picks, mm-hmm. make no mistake about it. I don't care how much research you've done. I don't care how much combine footage you've watched. I don't care how much game film you've after about the first eight picks in the draft, I don't care what any of them tell you. They're going with the best player available as per their positions of need on their team. Well, someone's going to reach. It happens every year. Someone reaches for a player. Someone decides they can't wait for a guy to slide to them. So they're going to go up there and go get them. They don't care how high it is. They're going to go up there and go get them. Chicago um, Bears. The Bears, yeah. They had, you know, they went one pick to get Trubisky, and the the 49ers weren't taking Trubisky, but they had to get him. The Chiefs had to go get um um the quarterback uh Mahomes. You know, and that's how Lattimore slid out of the top ten. As a guy guaranteed to go in the top ten, he goes to the Saints in eleven. So, you know, it's to me. When I'm looking at 27, at that pick 27, I think, barring anything unusual, I think they go defensive tackle or defensive end, a defensive lineman of some sort, okay? We'll see who slides, though. Who starts sliding on that board? I'm hoping, some people may not like to hear this, but I'm hoping it's an offensive-heavy draft, especially in the first 10 to 15 picks. Because if you have six quarterbacks go, and I'm just pulling six out of the air, okay, it could be as many, as little as four, but it could be as many as six. Six quarterbacks going, two to three running backs, maybe two tight ends, and a couple of receivers in there. That's a lot of offense going early. So what does that mean? That means cornerbacks, linebackers, and defensive linemen start sliding. Okay, that's good news for the Saints. 
Now, granted, I know a lot of people like certain tight ends. They want these tight ends. They should be available at 27. But if someone reaches and grabs one of those guys early, that's still good news for the Saints because now you're looking at some of those top defensive linemen sliding down further in the draft. Um, what would be a horrible draft for the Saints is very few quarterbacks go early. Maybe two running backs go. And they start picking defensive. It starts going defense, offense, couple defensive players, offense, where they start grabbing people at random. Now, suddenly at 27, you're stuck with crap. You know, not, I shouldn't say crap, because you're going to, you still have good players at 27, but you're stuck with, you're losing those top players you have marked off on your board as guaranteed first rounders. Now you start looking at guys who are bottom of the round one beginning round two kind of guys. Now you're thinking better. It might be better for the Saints just trade down, but you lose that five-year contract that you get with a first-round pick. You start looking now at a, you know, a, a second-round pick, which is a four-year deal. And it doesn't sound like much, but it's a huge difference for, for uh, a player that you're going to invest some money in because with that fifth-year option, you now have five years, maybe, that you can get that player on the cheap. Just think about Michael Thomas, for example. He's a first-round pick. You'd have five years to deal with him with that rookie contract. We have to pay him the big money compared to four, which means in two seasons, this season and next season, that's it for Michael Thomas and that cheap rookie contract. Now you have to pay him big money. Um and watch carefully what Jarvis Landry gets. Watch carefully what people like um, um, Sammy Watkins. Sammy Watkins. Thank you. Thank you. I had his name and I just slipped my mind. But watch carefully what these guys get and compare that to DeAndre Hopkins in Houston. You know, that's the month, that's the target. Okay. And every player, regardless of position, wants to be the highest player paid player, I'm sorry, for his position. That's an ego thing. They all want it. So they set the market and they raise the bar every time. So Michael Thomas is going to be watching that. Okay? He's going to say, look what I put up on the wall. Okay? Look at all these skins I put up on the wall. This is what I deserve. Okay? It could be an $80 million contract or something even more outrageous than that. That's part of the reason why we moved Cooks like we did, because they knew Cooks was going to be at this market uh, this year, looking at these numbers going, well, you know, you're going to have to pay me. Pay me or lose me. Somebody's going to pay me. And you can't pay anybody because that's what we started the show with. You got a very small collection at the top, a little bit in the middle, and then you got this huge base of cheap contract players, Okay. So you have to make decisions accordingly. Who am I going to pay? Who am I not going to pay? Because I can't pay everybody. Um, I have to keep drafting well. That's all I can do because I can reload. I have to be able to reload. I have to let some people go, and I'll reload with draft picks. That's the future of the NFL. It's going to be like college, accelerated. You know, it's about your recruiting class. It's not about your seniors anymore. You know, your seniors are gone. Now you're trying to, and that's that's why your windows become a lot smaller for championships too. Look at the Seattle window. 2012, basically to 2016, 2016, 
Yeah, they didn't make the playoffs last year. Four years. That was their window. Four years. They went to the Super Bowl twice. Won one, lost one. You know, that's what a team has to do. Jacksonville is going to be in the same predicament. Jacksonville has put that together, that awesome defense. They got some pieces on offense. You know, they've got to make their run now. They made it to the AFC Championship game, but now they have to make their run because in two to three years, you're going to start paying those players, okay? And you're not picking in the top five anymore. So you're not getting the cream of the crop. You know, now you have to start paying these guys. Some of these guys are going to have to go because I'm not going to pay these guys. I want to pay this guy. I'm going to have to let Bowie go because I, I need to pay Jalen Ramsey, that kind of thing. You know, that's just and, what that's that's the status of football today. And to a certain extent, you can lump the Saints into that same category. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because you're looking at right now, you've got uh, Cam Jordan and Drew Brees, which is going to mm -hmm. be your two big veterans, two big money makers. Mm -hmm. And right behind them, you're going to have, as you alluded to a moment ago, uh, after next season, Michael Thomas. Uh, and depending on how he steps into his new uh, expanded role, Von Bell. Yeah. Um, don't forget, you've also, somewhere in there, you're also going to have the deals of Mark Ingram and Alvin Kamara come up in the next three years. Yeah. Um, well, Ingram is probably going to get extended maybe one more time. I don't know how they feel, depending on how he does. But he'll probably extend, get extended for a couple of years, one more time. So he hits that magic age of 30, then he's gone. And then he'll bring somebody in behind him. You know, it, 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 they're going to pay Kamara. You know, they're going to pay Lattimore. Where everybody else fits in from there, we don't know. You know, they'll pay Thomas. But just watch. That's why the Saints aren't going to be really active in a – they may have one big splash signing, which will probably be Malcolm Butler. And we've gone way over time because we're now getting the free agency. But they're probably that one big the splash signing, probably a Malcolm Butler kind of guy. But the rest of the players they're going to start looking at, they're going to start looking hard at um, those second tier, those young guys, 25, 26, not ready for their big contract, but they were good backup kind of players, rotational players who might be open to a larger role in, in a different defense or a different offense. Bring in a couple of veteran guys like a Jimmy Graham where you pay him for a couple of years, but you draft a tight end too. You don't have to take him in the first, you know, first or third pick, but you can take him in the fourth round, draft a tight end, a groom behind Graham. So you let him go and a new guy comes in and you kind of stagger your your offense and defensive stars, so you don't have to pay a bunch of them at one time. You can stagger your contract, so you can kind of play with the cap. And that's what Mickey Loomis is best at, because Mickey Loomis can juggle that money as long as they keep drafting well. So we'll get into more of that, because I think next week is actually the first week of free agency. Um, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm in talks right now to possibly have us uh, – couple of special guests from uh, San Diego next week. Oh, uh, my beer guys? Yes, sir. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, Saints Craft Radio. Yes, my beer yeah. guys. Love yes, them. Love them. Uh, uh, we're, uh, I talked to, uh, to, to 
one of them earlier this week, and uh, he said, they said, hey, anytime you're ready for us, we're down. I said, okay, well. Absolutely. Well, we'll bring them on. Absolutely. We'll bring them on. Uh, we'll see what happens. Next week's free agency. Uh, next week, we'll see whether or not the Jimmy Graham rumors are true. We'll see if Malcolm Butler is a big signing or if they completely surprise us and pull some guy to the left field. And we're going, oh, my God, I never thought we'd sign this guy. And no, I don't think it's going to be Jarvis Landry. But anyway. P-Rob. Um, yeah. <laughs> it won't be P-Rob. We're not re- – that that's guy – that that is not part of the band we're bringing back. Well, what about we, Malcolm? We traded him for a microphone, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and a washing machine. No, no, no. We traded – he was the blues mobile. We traded him for a microphone, you know. <laughs> We got a we got a much better car. We got uh we got uh Lattimore. He's got cop tires, cop suspension, cop motor, much better car. <laughs> Even though it's a shit box dodge. <laughs> <laughs> All you who've ever seen the Blues Brothers know exactly what I'm talking about. So oh, actually yeah. I should say Ken Crawley is more of that, not not Lattimore. Lattimore's Lattimore's too elite. Ken Crawley Ken Crawley's the blues mobile. So anyway, <laughs> um, we'll join I, you next time. I don't time. even know where to go from there. You can't. You can't. You have to bring up the Blues Brothers. You have to go back and, and watch the Blues Brothers, one of the greatest movies ever made. That movie and Better Off Dead, two of my all-time favorite movies. You've seen Better Off Dead, right? Yep. Okay, good. Once. Good. Once? Once. Oh man, you need to see that movie several times. <laughs> That's an awesome movie with a French girl. Where he says he kept trying to put his testicles all over me. His what? You know, like the like the octopus tentacles, tentacles. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. uh, Lane Meyer. <laughs> it's a good thing that we've crossed uh, nine p.m. because we. That's uh... exactly we're past the family hour. Yeah, we've uh, we've crossed into uh, a whole different um, dimension. I, I want to thank that. everyone for joining us tonight. Invite every, once again, invite everyone to subscribe to us on YouTube and on iTunes yes. at Under the Dome. You can contact us on Facebook at the Under the Dome podcast page, or reach us on Twitter Under the Dome PO one, or um. Our our separate pages, which are all our handles, are all pinned on that uh, that page on Twitter as well. Thank and, you guys so much. Yes, Better Off Dead is on YouTube, by the way. You can watch it so you know exactly what I'm talking about, especially the drag racing scenes with uh, two two Asian guys who one speaks no English, the other learned to speak English by watching reruns of ABC's Wild World of Sports. You tell me what's worse. Speaking no English or speaking Howard Cosell. Anyway, <laughs> it's an awesome scene. It's an awesome movie. Please watch it if you haven't seen that movie before. John Cusack, one of his first movies. Anyway, thank you guys for sticking with us, and I'll keep making more movie references as best I can. Uh, <laughs> and we'll see you next time on Under the Dome. Good night, everybody. Good night, everyone.